Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the new PL Principles and Leadership in Business, the podcast series. I'm Paul, the host of the new PL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to listen today. Just before we start the podcast, it's clearly a very difficult time for many people and a very anxious time, I think, and, and this pandemic is touching all of our lives in some way. So I wanted to start the podcast by expressing my sincerest wishes to everyone. I hope you're keeping safe and well, and also our, our greatest thanks to everyone working on the front lines across the world and in so many ways to save us from this pandemic, both in our health services, but also those in supermarkets, care homes and, and delivery drivers and so on. Thank you to everyone. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or another platform and you like what you're here, then please take a moment to review us. It all helps our ratings and our rankings. And we believe business needs a new P&L, one that is as much focused on business and principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose and your leadership has a clear vision, focus, strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week on the new PNL, I'm very pleased and excited to introduce and welcome Hilary Sutcliffe to the show. Hilary runs London-based not-for-profit Society Inside. The name is a riff off the famous brand Intel Inside, and its focus is on the desire that innovation should have the values of people and planet at its heart, not scientific kudos or the need to simply make money. Hilary is also a member of the World Economic Forum's Agile Governance Council, and co-lead of the World Economic Forum Associated Project on Trust and Tech Governance, TIG Tech, which explores trust and distrust in tech governance and how past successes and failures can help show that a more ethical governance of future tech can earn societal and political trust. So Hilary, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much, Paul. And and I'd like to echo too your your words just then about how this, this crazy, astonishing time that we're in and how it's turning so many things upside down. Even just a few weeks ago, we, we, we would be having a sort of different conversation. So yes. I think in some ways it's bringing a lot of the, the, the things that you and I think about a lot into a much sharper relief. And it's really showing um, some of the values and principles that, that, that we talk about. Um, sort of happening in action in, in very much in the, in the front of our eyes. So a very interesting time as well as a very difficult and, and a very trying time, I think, for so many people. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's start with a, with a question based on an article I read recently that, that looks at those human values. And it was uh, by Mark Carney, the, clearly the former governor of the Bank of England, it was in the Financial Times, I think, around a week ago, and it was titled How the Economy Must Yield to Human Values. Um, Mark Carney suggested in that that it's likely that for some time after the pandemic, local resilience will be prized over global efficiency. And while this may also apply to clearly to logistics and manufacturing and so on, I did wonder with your role in tech for good and, and ethical tech, whether it was also true that it would impact on both technological innovation, if we're all looking more inwards, but also how, if and whether broad global ethical standards could be applied in a scenario where we are more inward looking. Yes, very interesting question. I must admit, I was really impressed um, with Mark Carney. I've been following a little bit of what he's been doing at the Bank of England 
in, in, in terms of just his, the way his leadership and values and, and his transparency and openness. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that every single thing the Bank of England ha- puts out has to be able to be read by his, sort of his grandmother. You know, what a great thing for something like the Bank of England to do. So I read that with interest. Um, and I think two things. Yes, of course, um, a local resilience will be important. And, but what we're finding certainly um, in Europe and globally is that it's also the time that we have to pull together. So these two things are simultaneously happening. Um, the, the inclination that we naturally have to sort of bond to our local community, our, perhaps our national community, but also the genuine need to be global in our interpretation, our responses. Mm-hmm. So these are even more intention, I think, than at any time before. And some of those things are really global values. I was quite impressed to read something from the World Economic Forum on workplace principles for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And this was how businesses could respond in how they, um, they worked with their um, individual employees, but also suppliers and associates. And I think there are equally global principles um, that can be applied, but also global learning and global cooperation that will need to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think, as you say, we are perhaps naturally more inclined towards the local, but we really need to find ways of also being connected on on a global level. I don't know how we're going to do that. I mean, clearly, to to connect on a global level, it requires sort of genuine and passionate and uh, leadership at a global level. And whether that's in regards to ethics and tech or whatever it happens to be, um, but I wonder whether you feel there is true leadership in terms of an ethical approach to technology across the globe. I mean, clearly, we've talked about ethics and technology for I'm sure you've talked about it for for many many years and. We seem to move slowly towards that goal, but it still seems to take a very, a very long time. And we see the same reports year after year in the media about big tech or little tech or whatever it happens to be and, and some of the less than ethical approaches to the way they manage and curate data. So where do you think that, that leadership comes from to get us to that next level? I think so. It's funny. I work across tech. So when you say tech, you mean digital tech. Um, when I say tech, I mean everything from advanced materials, nanotechnology, yes. which I do quite a bit of work in, gene editing, genetic modification, Internet of Things, um, all sorts of tech. And, you know, I am also quite ancient. And so I've been doing this for a long time. And honestly, you take the name of the tech out, you put the name of the next tech in and mm-hmm. the same things happen. Yes. And so you're sort of thinking, I've been thinking for a while, what is this going on? But actually, for me, it's not about the technology per se, because actually it's about people. So technologies and values are one thing, but actually technologies are created by people. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's those things and those values that people adhere to that actually really drive the tech. I'm I'm, I'm on the... um, board of a a project on existential risk at the University of Warwick and I'm trying to persuade them and this is very relevant now with COVID-19 that actually they were looking for lists of technologies for to describe existential risk and I'm saying no the nature of human nature is the biggest of existential risk Mm -hmm. let's look there and we've sort of seen that here as well so I think in in relation to your point about this sort of these issues coming up again and again and again 
Um, it's because people are people and also because ideologies are still inherent across across time and across tech. Mm. I'm reading, and I don't know if you've seen the size of it, you, Thomas Piketty's Capital and Ideology, about this concept that values and principles um, of the market forces, of um, stakeholder and shareholder capitalism, these are ideologies that we've made them up and we can equally make up other more inclusive ones. So I like this idea that looking at, at why we don't seem to learn the lessons of the past is both a concept anchored in our individual humanity and also the structures and the values and the principles that are accepted generally in, in our societies. But none of those necessarily are fixed. And I think COVID-19 is, is asking those questions of us. If that we are really yeah. starting again in some ways, what do we have to do and, and what could we do differently and take, uh, take advantage of the fact that all the balls are thrown up in the air and we have to reinvent ourselves in different ways, could we take that opportunity to do, you know, consider different values and different principles? So one, one thing this pandemic has thrown up and, and lots of commentators out there are discussing are uh, some of the, the structural holes and the way we manage our economies at the moment, particularly in the West. And I wondered what your thought was in terms of whether this pandemic presents a moment in time opportunity to to realign the relationship that democratic governments have with their citizens and, and particularly the economic model or path that some Western governments have chosen over re recent decades. And to give you a, an illustrative example, I guess, you know, virus symptom management and contract, contact tracing is key to managing the pandemic on an ongoing basis. This will rely in part um, in uh, on input into apps, and this will rely in part on citizens being honest with their symptoms when inputting into these apps. But um, if they're to be honest, then there are many people out there who have insecure employment or zero hours contracts or various other issues around sickness, um, pay and so on that may prohibit them being totally honest because it may mean they, they lose their job permanently or temporarily. So I wonder whether it's an opportunity to rewrite almost the social contract that we have, that if we are to have more surveillance as such, then does the government need to consider how we rewrite the labour market in return? Yes. You do ask rather big questions, Paul. Um, <laughs> yes, I think, so there's quite a number of things sort of taken out of that conversation. I think in terms of what some of the responses that we're going to need, like surveillance, um, which could be temporary and we all know end up sometimes as slippery slopes mm -hmm. um, and, and could be permanent. Yes, of course, these things have to be considered. I'm quite supportive of a lot of the moves that we're having at the moment that even given the need to act quickly, the engagement and involvement of citizens, both from a moral point of view, mm. but also genuinely from a, a sort of you experts sitting there in your little rooms or now in your little back bedrooms, <laughs> could and shouldn't be doing this on behalf of society with such a narrow focus and such a narrow, perhaps, understanding of the principles and the, the concepts that, that you're really asking us to take on. Um, so I think, yes, there has got to be a greater understanding of the potential impacts and influences 
of this in the short, medium and long term. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't be taken advantage of because we want to do the good. We need that to have yes. happen for us all to transition. But at the same time, we're just having to abdicate our sort of life sort of values to a greater good that then is going to be taken advantage of in, in the future. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm doing a project at the moment, this trust project, which is looking at what does it look like to be trustworthy and what values are part of that. And particularly, the, the, you know, the, the five values tr trust drivers, particularly the intent. So what is your intent when you're behind this, you know, mm -hmm. that's behind this, which I think you can see, for example, is, is very much a public interest intent, although people want to, make a few quick bucks with their new app i think is causing a few problems but then the the inclusion the fact that people do want and need agency um we do want to respond we do want to have agency and we do want to be included and that will help us trust the process and trust the outcomes yeah and of course the openness about this we're having a lot of trouble in the uk with our government seeming to be lacking in inclination to be open about how the decisions they're making have been taken. And mm -hmm. um, it's rocking trust. And we see in other areas, particularly, I think, sort of South Korea, Singapore, New Zealand, Denmark, where governments have been a lot more open in a warts and all basis. And also this another trust driver, honesty, where mm -hmm. we've not made mistakes, where we've made mistakes, just, just come clean. It's never the problem, is it? It's never the problem. It's always the cover up. Mm. always trying to finesse it and make it into something else instead of just telling the truth. And then finally, fairness, which is entirely the, the starting point of your question there. Yes. You know, it's, it, it's not fair. It's, this, this COVID crisis is deeply unfair, particularly to the most marginalized, the most vulnerable. And how do we ensure fairness within this social contract? Because it will be unfair and, and it's, un, it's just unanswerable that it be unfair so how do we make it fair yes. and these trust drivers we think are central to those questions to asking those questions but the answers wow i mean really the answers are not easy are they no they aren't no no um certainly not the next hour <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> um one thing that i think a lot about the sustainability challenges that we have in the world and i think there are similar challenges with ethical approaches to technology, whatever those areas of technology are. It's a very uneven field and there are often commentaries in the UK and Europe about if we move quicker but others are still coal-fired or don't take some of the emissions targets as seriously, then the argument is that those countries that do, in the short term at least, put themselves at an economic disadvantage. So if we're to transfer that to the ethics and technology argument, how do you encourage some governments or companies to act in a principled or ethical manner when it comes to technological innovation when, when others don't, when, when the, the playing field seems to be uneven as a result? Well, yes. I mean, that's leadership, isn't it? That's, that's, the, that's the essence of leadership in yes. a way. Um, I think I see, for example, I mean, thing, we talked about Mark Carney. There are incentives and structures and ways of valuing and sort of penalizing i think governance i suppose mm -hmm. um that actually make a more level playing field that allow leadership 
to, to seem not like such a, a sort of win-lose type thing. And I, what I was quite excited about reading some things like Mark Carney's work, some of the stuff that's going on in the UN and in all sorts of other areas, is it, it's not just about a vision, but it's attached to practical processes, practical incentives. And we're seeing quite a bit of that in, on a country-by-country country basis. Mm-hmm. And, and it would be fascinating to see, I mean, obviously the European Union, the European project, um, that's been really shaken by this. So how, even when you have a commitment to being a European Union, whether some people are in or out, <laughs> um, that actually is a matter of, of, of practice as well yeah. as of sort of, you know, we want it to be this way, but how do we make it this way? Yes. So I can see then again that, that, that things like, you know, centralized finance or um, things that does, don't make it so much beholden on individual countries to, to take on more. But then that's, that's, what, that's what development is like. And we have got trust, Trump in the U.S., you know, being the antithesis of, of, a, of a, a strong and purposeful um, altruistic leader. So when you see those two types of battles being fought across the world, you don't know where it's going to end. Mm. So do you, do you have some good examples from around the world where, where gov, perhaps governments and technology companies, whatever their, whatever their hue, um, have got it right when it comes to the balance between innovation and intervention or regulation are there some great examples of tech hubs or or countries that you feel have that ethical balance right well for me tech is is transnational it's it's you know there's very little tech that is sitting there in its in your own country that doesn't go Mm. anywhere else so I don't see that particularly but I do see which might be I think unpopular with with um in some quarters I remember that you know we were laughed at in Europe with the GDPR. You know, Europe, the precautionary. You know, this is stymieing innovation. This is ridiculous. Yes. And suddenly, oh, GDPR—that's quite a useful thing. Let's have a look at that. Yeah. So yes, I think Europe has taken the lead on understanding some of the values and some of the issues and some of the ethics and some of the you know the problems that need to be addressed in relation to tech. And I think this this slightly naive idea going around the world that I think even Zuckerberg's managed to, to sort of realize this might not be quite so good that yes, you know, we don't need regulation, leave it to us. It's okay. When there are deeply difficult problematic impacts that tech is, is, is causing on society to say you don't want any governance is just, well, it's just nonsense and it's just mm. stupid. Governance doesn't mean constraining necessarily. It does obviously constrain in some ways, but it's also a facilitating thing. And as you've seen some of the big tech leaders, uh, you know, say, actually, yeah, we perhaps do need regulation after all. It's really helpful. It's like, oh, God, blimey, we've only been telling you this for 10 years. So interesting to see the sort of, I don't know quite what, I feel like it's waves going up and down across the world in relation to governance. Um, so I can't say hand on heart. I, th- I like what we're doing in the UK with independent bodies such as the Ada Lovelace Institute and the Centre for T- Data Ethics and Innovation, trying to somehow calibrate the ethics and social issues to support the government um, regulatory approach. I think that's mm-hmm. important in the engagement of citizens. 
Um, I, I was in conversation with the government of Singapore recently, and they're doing very innovative things. But what was fascinating then too, obviously we have this view, and I feel it's very sort of almost racist, that Singapore have got it easy because everyone's quite obedient over there and they have a sort of more cohesive approach of, um, to how governance needs to be addressed. But I asked them, what is the biggest concern and what is your biggest problem in terms of governance of tech? And they said citizens' involvement, engagement and and citizens' concerns are the thing that most worry them. I was quite surprised right. by that. Yeah. So I, I guess I'd like to know what, what you think the pros and the cons are in terms of the role of technology in our private lives when we come out of this pandemic. So you know, we touched on surveillance before, but there's also this pandemic has demonstrated huge and rapid positive advances in medical and pharma tech and, and all sorts of manufacturing uh, vacuum cleaner manufacturers turning into ventilators in a week, for example. So what will be the pros and the cons in your view of the way of the role of technology in our lives when we come out of this pandemic? Well, interesting. I mean, so there's the role of technology and there's the perception of technology. So let's take them separately. I think one of the things that has come out of this is a sort of a positivity towards the responsiveness of business. So I think there has been and a view that actually, you know, tech can be used for good and tech can be used for bad. And you've seen a little bit more of the good, but I'm a great fan of, oh gosh, I can't remember who the guy's name now, who said tech is not good and it's not bad, but it's not neutral. So all of the tech can be used for good and bad and neutral. And, mm. and that's what governance is, making sure we don't get the bad, we do get the good. Um, but understanding every piece of tech has got political values laden aspects to it. Mm-hmm. And I think also it has, you know, our prime minister is very keen on the wartime analogies, which are sometimes questionable in relation to a pandemic like this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a purpose like that, which is, which is very focused, very activating, a, a sort of a mission-based approach is is galvanizing and one of the things that we've been talking about before and i know you you'll be familiar with mariana mazzucato's work this idea of mission-based innovation this is an example of mission-based innovation rather than a sort of what i call tech looking for a home style innovation which is i know we've got this tech where where can we point it oh let's try that and that's a different sort of thing now it's got to be a little bit of that But I think this has shown the value of mission-based innovation. But there are other aspects of that. So, for example, I'm hearing about poor old Dyson is wasting 20 million quid on his ventilators that either they don't want or they don't quite like the ones he's Mm. given. Um, And there's all sorts of people making their own visors, which are actually counterproductive to you know to the um to to the protection they're supposed to provide and then there's lots of little apps some of which are useless some of which are not Mm -hmm. actually crowding the space of 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 what's really needed so it struck me too you know how difficult is that everybody wants to help everybody's chucking everything at it you know 60 how many 50 90 percent of which is useless so that's also very difficult a very difficult thing how to calibrate that how to make that work how to make tech for good really for good not just sort of a hammer looking for a nail you know Mm. 
I mean, you, you made a, an interesting point in that answer where you talked about what the pandemic has shown is, you know, mission-based innovation and, and technology development. Um, if we look at a previous life before the pandemic came along earlier on this year and over the last decade, decade and a half, you talked about perhaps technology sometimes being developed and then pointed at an industry. Um, I wonder whether that latter example is, you know, do you feel that part of the issue today with technology startups, again, regardless of the sector they are involved in, whether tech startups and their VC investors have sometimes lost sight of their true purpose. So the primary focus of technology development has increasingly become profit and not purpose first. So, you know, they start a company and they want to become a unicorn. They don't want to change the world. You know, do you think this is where the system has broken down that perhaps some tech startups and their VC backers have, have lost the real focus and purpose for technology, which is technology for human evolution and for good? Well, you know, I sound like a right old cynic, so I don't mean to sound like that, but I sort of think that's, you know, tech for making money, innovation for making money has been probably the major driver for many, many, well, ever. Yes. So obviously, I don't see anything specifically different about this. Some people and some companies will really have a social purpose. Obviously, the social purpose enterprises, those types of things. Some, like a, maybe a Unilever, will express it and see it as more core to, to what they're doing. And some will just, you know, whether you're a plumber or whether you're a, you know, a tech app maker, you just got to make a buck. You know, you got to stay around. So I don't think that's necessarily problematic because you know we've got to make a living mm -hmm. but also i think it's when it's at the expense of something else right i think that's when it becomes problematic um and you know the the investors i did my thing called the responsible nanocode in 2006 which uh, we'd identified over the last few years that actually investors are the greatest levers for positive um social environmental yes. um, purpose and I'd done some work you know since about 96 on, on, on tomorrow's company the future of business in a staging world which is all about stakeholder capitalism and it's like oh yeah we're still there <laughs> we're still asking the question but um, I think these particular Silicon Valley VCs um, I think they're not asking the questions at all yeah. I even asked someone, a friend, uh, uh, somebody I know got 50 million in the UK on synthetic biology for synthetic biology. And not one values-based, ethics-based question was asked by the VCs. And I did my master's thesis on soft issues, hard cash, trying to make it out that these issues, this lack of questioning is going to cost you. Um, yes. And disappointingly, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But not asking these questions surely is a risk for investors that is now perhaps coming home to roost. Yes. And I can't help but be delighted that SoftBank Vision Fund is coming such a cropper with some of them entirely stupid investments because they haven't even thought through it in the investment perspective, never mind some of the social and ethical aspects of it. Right. So let's see where it goes. You yeah. know, we've seen it all before. Um, and we'll see it again. I think that what I think we need to do is make ethic count positively towards the bottom line and penalise those who who don't take any notice. But we've been promising that for a while. So let's see what happens.
the um i've asked this question of a couple of previous guests as well and i'd love to get your take on it um i read an article from sundar pichai the ce of google and alphabet a couple of months back he was talking about the role of tech businesses and government regulation and there's a lot of conversation out there about regulation and ai at the moment um in the article he stated that the companies that build ai technologies should not be the same companies that let market forces decide on how it is being used and that government regulation at some level must play a role in the future of a principled approach to ai in particular um but there are a lot of tech companies also proposing self-regulation of some level but the acceptance of or at least the action of self-regulation seems to be quite patchy so i wondered what your view was specifically around ai but also more generally between the balance of self and government regulation and also whether you felt there was any sort of government model as a kind of reward for self-regulation i.e. the government could adopt with um, tech businesses so businesses that demonstrate ethical self-regulation are offered a competitive or a regulatory advantage yes very interesting that i read that too the thing about ai which is the same with a lot of the other tech is ai mm -hmm. is not a thing ai permeates every type of sector every industry yep. everywhere and there's regulation a lot of the time already so i talked to some people who said but we've got regulation there's just very few places where there are gaps that actual regulation that's existing isn't already going to fill whether it right. be about discrimination and bias whether it be about privacy whether it be about other things so regulation is out there already it's mm -hmm. not a sort of it's not the wild west particularly yet but it is in some areas so there are aspects of so what regulation is lacking what aspects of regulation are lacking for what aspects of ai so of course that has to happen um but this idea of self-regulation so i'm on this uh, the agile governance council of, of the world economic forum and that is exploring the role of governance which can't keep up with right the technology as it evolves yeah and therefore these big gm style you know reach like the like the advanced materials and chemicals regulation of reach mm -hmm. that take 15 20 years that's not going to happen so what does it look like to have a more agile approach and which is perhaps which is iterative which is not 20 years and then it, yeah. it you know it gets changed and there are principles and then it's worth having a look if anybody's interested in that i mean in some ways there are tools like sandboxes which are which i hate the word which you know sandboxes are little kids playing in sand and having fun and it's being applied to governance of the powerful technologies <laughs> i think there's something wrong with that terminology yeah, yeah. But this idea of trial and error-based governance, I like. Yeah. This idea that because we so see, we're seeing very much in our trust project that governance is not designed for the way the world really works. A lot of the problems that we see is governance designed in isolation, not understanding the way people work, the way markets work, and the way companies work. And so something that actually allows a slightly more trial and error-based approach based on iteration and is a good idea mm -hmm. but whether where that is pointed and how that works and who's involved i don't I, I don't know and that depends sandbox by sandbox i'm very keen on this concept of citizens um 
helping shape governance. I don't know if you're aware of something called V-Taiwan, which is a process in Taiwan to help citizens engage with governance, particularly right. of technologies. Mm -hmm. And it's both a, an online platform which steers people towards a more collaborative approach, and it's about um, direct dialogue. And it started because the Taiwan government had been four years trying to look at online alcohol um, regulation, and they'd right. just come to a shuddering standstill. And this platform of V-Taiwan sorted it out in four months by finding ways of breaking down silos, by breaking down barriers and 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 sort of unsticking log jams mm -hmm. and literally they divined that in four months with this process they've done revenge porn they've done uber they've done all sorts of different things yeah. so i think there are lots of governance instruments that can be used with all sorts of different stakeholders involved which actually stop this log jam that happens with a lot of tech governance but i think also you know Self-regulation. I, I was talking about self-regulation on LinkedIn and someone said, yes, self-regulation is an idea who's come and long since gone <laughs> because it's basically seen as it's never really worked. So why should we expect it to work now? Now, I'm, I'm um, very admiring of some work that's happening in Arizona State University with Professor Gary Marchant on right. soft law that works. So actually, it's not true that self-regulation doesn't work. Standards works in some ways standards doesn't work in other ways yes. there are bits of self-regulation that work um so how do we take the bits that work and ditch the bits that don't work and sort of create this web of governance that naturally does both if you take the example of v taiwan which was a very interesting example does i'm assuming that relies very much um and it's going to differ from country to country because it relies on a relationship of trust between citizen and government that the information they contribute will be used in a in an ethical way i guess by the government whatever the topic they are assessing at that point in time alcohol or uber or whatever else it happens to be there, there are and that trust ebbs and flows in governments itself doesn't it between you know either either at the beginning of a electoral cycle perhaps more people are trusting of the government than towards the end so how do you think that or does it matter and how do you think that that embrace of trust between or connection of trust between citizen and government impacts on the success of these initiatives? Yeah, very good question. I mean, so we're looking at trust in two ways, which is what goes on in our heads when we have a trust decision to make mm -hmm. and what you do, your trustworthiness. And actually we can trust people who really are, you know, slightly dubious in a certain context and not in another context because mm -hmm. trust context matters a lot and also this demonstration and evidence of trustworthiness matters a lot so for example in the context of v taiwan um, and the context of trust in initiatives uh, you know per se i'm doing some mm -hmm. very interesting work with the governance of the netherlands on building trusted environments and this concept that actually there is a commitment by the government we are going to listen to you. This is not going to be some little tick box thing which happens most of the time where, thank you very much. Yes, we've done your dialogue. Phew, thank goodness we got that out of the way. Um, and we, we've spoken to them, right, we can just get on with what we've already got. You know, we're already decided. So there has to be some openness about what you're going to do with this process and that it's actually going to count. The biggest trust driver is the intent. 
that you intend to do this for the public interest. So there is that public interest intent that has to be explicit and has to be, we, you know, you and I can look at it and think, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I go for that. And then you have to have the processes that are respectful of citizens, they are inclusive, they're sensible, common sense, mm-hmm. that you and I can see, yeah, I, you know, they're open. I could see that this is worth my time. So, and there's various other, you know, various other things fall, fall after that. Openness and honesty about what's going to happen. And, and then most important of all, actually, what has been done with the findings and what has been done about yes. it. Because one of the things, and I found it now, oh, I'm so, I'll be embarrassed to say, is it Australia? Is it New Zealand? The guy is going to kill me. I have a feeling it's New Zealand where the, the, the government and the parliament has to have, every time it's doing some regulation, a, um, a clear and comprehensive um, representation of stakeholder views and, and how these are represented in the design of this particular piece of regulation. Now, that's a cool thing. Mm-hmm. What doesn't happen, unfortunately, is the government then doesn't, that the Prime Minister's office doesn't actually commit to tell you you know, to, to, to th- weave that thread through to the final decision. But those sorts of things build trust in the process. And we're coming to the conclusion that process matters so much, it can actually override some residual distrust in the institution. Yes. So where is the balance then, in, in your view, and it's everything subjective here, but where's the balance between consultation that builds trust and inertia? So is there a point at which, you know, the more input that is put into these initiatives and, you know, three people in four views, so to speak, to use the old cliche, um, do we end up with a point where actually nothing happens because there are too many opposing views or too many views to work through? And then that paradoxically or ironically um, removes trust in the government because they've put out another initiative that has been bogged down by inertia because of too many views so no action is taken and then further distrust or disillusionment occurs with the government between the government and the citizens. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. That does happen. But that's no. what Vitae One, for example, was trying to avoid. And this is what happens in GM. This is what happened with nanotech. Yep. This is what happens a lot of the time. And there's certainly in AI, there are incredibly loads of views, all of which are incredibly valuable and mm. not mutually, you know, untrue a lot of these are true and one of the things i'm finding with the trust project is when it goes wrong it doesn't go wrong for the competence process reasons it goes wrong because for four things tech is seen to be at the expense of society mm-hmm. because um, alternative views have been ignored or silenced because governments and governance is not attached to the real world and because um, institutions are aloof, opaque and secretive. Yes. And these are the drivers of distrust. So one of the things we're saying is let's just start with no distrust. Let's just start with not making massive cock-ups and then, tr- and then see where we get there in terms <laughs> of trust. And so yeah. I think that those are quite important to that process because there are always going to be different views. And what we're saying and finding with our trust project is what happens, governance and governments deal better with competencies and rules and technical sort of aspects of governance. 
but the problems are values problems mm. and they tend to deal with values questions with competence answers and respond to emotion with rationality and wonder why it doesn't work so one of the things we're looking at about this building of trusted environments is actually trying to distill what the values are and, and Kahneman, the, uh, the great Nobel Prize winning economist, has got this great phrase, which I really love, which is, don't try and persuade, understand the resource of the resistance and address that. Yes. Because actually all these values questions are all coming from somewhere. And getting down to what the somewhere is and the nugget of what the somewhere is, is the most important bit. And that's the process. And, and that's where the process happens again. It's doable. It's hard. It's doable. What... Um in your in your view what impact would in terms of the perception of trust and fairness would taxing big tech giants at the point of sale um in any given country what impact would that have in terms of the perception of fairness and trust between citizens and government that everyone is paying their fair share of tax yes i mean i think that's um, that's a, a perennial one i think i first asked that question in 1989 about the role of tax <laughs> as a responsibility driver um it, it grows it waxes and wanes in importance now because of this huge sums that are now being lost to the exchequers of different countries um i think it, it, it won't go away at the moment mm. now it really won't go away um, and I think it is a Cree driver of, of, of distrust because it's like you guys are just making so much money. And especially now when we're seeing, you know, we're sort of getting to feel with COVID where the money goes. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of maybe making this more explicit. You know, this is why we have our national health program and we need tax to do this. And by the way, because businesses have, you know, are being so dramatically affected by this we start to sort of see the chain of, of value and tax is one of those. I think that might become even more important. To me, it's indefensible in any shape or form and always has been. Um, but it's another one of those things. It's like Piketty is saying, it's an ideology. It's somehow just fudged mm. and just allowed. And yet, because, oh, business market forces, businesses are the engine of, of society, you know, I think it will change as the mm. ideology changes, but it's it's a no-brainer for me. Yeah, Hilary. Just before we go, as as you as you may be aware, we end each podcast with the new PNL to the point section, where we ask each guest to provide one or two key takeaways that listeners can think about and perhaps apply to their business when it comes to principles and leadership. So, what would those two key takeaways be from your perspective today? Well. Since it's front and center of my mind at the moment, this concept of trust, which is very much about values and competencies, uh, very much about, you know, how are you demonstrating your values? Everybody's mm -hmm. got one of the things when we did, when we worked on this project and we're looking, we've got the trust drivers from the OECD and we looked at them and it's like, what? You know, honesty, fairness, like inclusion. Well, that's boring. I was really <laughs> hoping for it to be something really different that we could say, look, guys, the drivers yeah. of trust. So we started to look at this and said, well, why are we still making the same mistakes over and over again if we've known about these things forever? Because these aren't just words. These are really psychological, sociological, deeply meaningful things. 
And I think if I was to have any takeaway, which is look at these values as if they actually really matter, as opposed to they're just something that is quite nice and you've got to have them on your website. And companies do and don't in varying degrees of, of take them varying degrees of importance. So mm. I would say, you know, look at them and, sh- and sort of understand that they are really real. They are actually quite important to the way you behave and to the way you're perceived. And then this concept of, of Anora O'Neill's is everybody's talking about trust. Well, it's pretty obvious. First, be trustworthy, which is about these trust drivers and the values, and then provide evidence of your trustworthiness. Because again, it, nobody knows about you from, except for how they see you behave and what they see on your website and how you actually treat them. So these two things are, are equally important in a way. It's almost the tip of the iceberg. The behaviors happen underneath and it's only when things go wrong and you know, the, it, those are exposed that you see potentially where the problems have lay. So we say you need both of those. You need trustworthiness and you need evidence of trustworthiness. Lovely. Thank you very much, Hilary. That's, um, that's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting too to talk to you, Paul. I'm really looking forward to uh, keeping abreast of what you're doing. Keep up Lovely. the good work. Uh, thank you. Uh, for all those interested in finding out a little bit more about what Hillary and her team does, please go to societyinside.com. And to all of you who have downloaded and listened to this and other episodes of the new PNL, I thank you once again for taking the time. And as I said in the introduction, if you like what you've heard, please take a moment to review us. And if you'd like to subscribe, please go to principlesandleadership.com. Finally, before we go, a quick word from the sponsors of the podcast. We're sponsored this week by UK multimedia design and animation studio, Kamuka. You can find them at kamuka.com, C-A-M-O-U-K-A.com. And if you'd like us to consider a specific topic related to the new PL or interview you, let us know. We'd be very happy to chat. So I'm Paul from the new PL, Principles in Leadership and Business. Thank you once again for listening and stay safe.